that has a tradition the Friday night before finals every year, and it is called the Silent Night Game. Okay, so the Silent Night Game is a basketball game, and at this game, the students get decked out in all sorts of costumes and such. So a lot of us, if we went with like our sweaters today, we could sit together and be part of, you know, that, that student section and such. But what happens also at this game is when it nears the end of the game, the entire crowd just begins singing Silent Night while the game is going on. It's a really cool thing. But the thing that a lot of people know about this Silent Night game is that once the tip-off happens, like at the very beginning of the game, the entire crowd is silent until Taylor University scores their 10th point. So it doesn't matter if the other team gets there first or whatever. As soon as the 10th point happens, like the crowd just erupts and specifically the student section. Now, I get that you've heard what I just said, but like it doesn't do it justice. I feel like you probably need to see it. So here is a video of the 2023 Silent Night game and what happens when the 10th point happens. 5-0 spurt here for Great Lakes Christian is this place ready to explode at the next three-point basket. Hodson. Near side web, Yoon tries to break the silence. Now, if you want, there are all sorts of clips out there from the past years. You can go watch all those things. But that just is incredible to me. I was like, well, I guess that's probably worth a technical foul, you know, everyone coming onto the court. But as I researched it, they don't get a technical foul because what happens is they have already communicated. So the referees know as soon as that 10th point happens, it's an automatic media timeout. And so there's no technical foul. I guess if you're a player, you know, you just need to get out of the way so you get, don't get trampled. So we were watching this at home. My kids are like, wouldn't that be cool if it's like you're preaching in your 10th point? or the 10th scripture, like everyone just rushes the stage. That'd be pretty funny. Don't do it. But anyway, <laughs> that would be, make me laugh. And so even though like this, the fans were silent, you could hear some noise going on on the court because they're still playing and all that kind of stuff. But the thing that kind of just jumped out to me is that even though it's the quote silent night game and everyone's quiet there at the beginning, there's still a lot going on. Like even though it's still quiet, there's still a lot going on. I tell you that, and I show you that clip because, yes, there's this silent night game, but what we're studying today, a lot of people call the silent years. Okay, now what exactly am I talking about? Some people call it the intertestamental period. It is the time from when you finish Malachi and you turn one page later and get to Matthew. And you might go, okay, don't you just go straight from Old Testament to New Testament? There's actually about 400 years in between there. And that is a time frame where there was a cessation of uh, prophetic speeches. Like the prophets weren't speaking. God wasn't giving new messages during that time frame. Now, I will tell you, 
If you were to open up a lot of Catholic Bibles, you'll see this section called the Apocrypha. And those are other writings from this time frame. And some Catholics believe those are inspired, some don't. But I just want you to know that, that some people would tell you, nah, I don't think it's completely silent. God was speaking during that time. But most Protestants would tell you, even if that's good history, it's not on the same level of, of inspiration, that God was the one speaking. And so even if you were to read in the Apocrypha, there's one, uh, a section from 1 Maccabees, chapter 9, verse 26. It says this, thus there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear, appear among them. So even in the Maccabees, they're talking about there is a time that the prophets quit speaking. There wasn't a new message. Or maybe you've heard of a Jewish historian named Josephus, and he says this, says about the time of Artaxerxes of Persia, the exact succession of the prophets had ceased. And so even outside of scripture, we hear these people saying there was a time where God quit speaking through the prophets to give his message. And the question is, why? Like, why would he choose to do that? And I can't tell you the exact answer, but there are some thoughts. One of the answers is the idea of God was using this as a time of preparation. Like he had spoken through the prophets and now the Messiah was going to be coming. But there was this time that was kind of a break to lead up to the Messiah that was coming. That is a possibility. Some people would tell you that God had spoken and said everything that the people needed through all the Old Testament. And so at that point, he, he chose to stop speaking because they had the information that they needed. That's also a possibility. Some people would tell you that the hearts of the people had quit listening. And you know what? As a parent, there's a moment where you keep talking to your kids and they're just not listening. You just quit talking. And so maybe there's an aspect of God has been talking and talking and you're not listening. So I'm going to step back at this moment. Some people would tell you that this time of silence was even prophesied in the book of Amos chapter eight, verse 11 says the days are coming declares the Lord when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. And so some people would tell you that this 400 years is actually a prophecy of that. I don't know that I agree with that. Just in the fact of Amos was a Northern kingdom prophet. He was speaking to Israel and then they get overtaken by Assyria and never really come back. So I don't necessarily agree, but it is again, a thought process that could happen. So here's all this stuff as far as the silent years. And here, what I would simply tell you, even though God was choosing not to speak through prophets during these silent years, it doesn't mean that nothing was going on. There actually was a lot. And if you were to look in Daniel, there's a couple different dreams. In chapter two, the king has a dream about a statue that has these four different sections. Like this head is made of one material and the chest and arms are made of another material. The belly and the thighs are made of a third material and the legs and the feet, they're made of a fourth material. Or even in Daniel chapter seven, he sees four different beasts and they're pretty kind of crazy creatures if you turn and read all about them. But both of those sections are talking about these four kingdoms that are going to be the power there on earth. And most historians agree that those four kingdoms are the Babylonian empire, which leads to the Medo-Persian empire, which leads to the Greek empire, which finally ends in the Roman empire. And so all of this is prophesied, kind of like the mountaintop prophecies, again, that we talked about last week, that maybe they fully didn't understand everything, but understand here are these powers that are going to come and rule. And so now for the next few minutes, I actually want to give you a little bit of a history lesson. All right. Now, some of you are like, oh, okay. Can I tell you this? Some history classes I loved and some I hated. 
Here's the ones that I did not like. I did not like it when all we had to learn were names and dates and regurgitate for that for a test. Like, didn't learn anything in those, just being honest. But the ones that then teach you things and, hey, here's the name and here's what happened and then here are things that we can learn from that, those I very much enjoyed learning the story of history. And so that's my goal here is to kind of tell you the story of history so that you see how God is working through these, quote, silent years and you watch the puzzle pieces be put together. And so the Jewish people had been taken to captivity under Babylon, but then they were overtaken. And so then in the year 538, they are allowed to come back to Jerusalem and they rebuild. They rebuild their city. They rebuild their temple, all of those kinds of things. And for approximately 100 years, they continue to hear prophets speaking to them on behalf of God, which then ends with Malachi, which is about the year 430, about 430 B.C., Well, then what you need to know is the Persians, they continue to rule this area where the Jewish people are living and they allow them to govern themselves. So the high priests are the ones who are kind of ruling over all the people, but they are still answerable to the Persian government. Okay. And the Persians said, you can continue all your religious practices. We're not going to get involved. There's no interference. So you can continue doing that. So that's kind of how things were going when they came back. And then about 3.30, There's a guy named Alexander the Great. Maybe you've heard of him. And he comes in from Greece and he conquers Persia. And now the Jewish people are underneath his rule. And again, for a while, he's like, you know what? You guys can continue to do all the religious things um, that you're wanting to. And so that worked out pretty well. But the change that happened is something called Hellenization. All right. Now, Hellas is the ancient Greek word for Greece. And so what Alexander thought is, I am going to unify all of these different countries. But the way that I'm going to do that is make them look like Greece. Okay. We're going to take all these things and make everyone unified in that way. So each place that was conquered, they left Greek colonists there. So now Greek culture and Greek customs and ideas and the language, military tactics, even markets for trade, and even their gods were being taught at all these different places. Because during this time, education was such a big deal. There's a lot of people who learn how to read and they learn how to write. And about 250 BC, that's when we have something that's created called the Septuagint. What that is, is the entire Old Testament is now translated into Greek. And so you have all these things that have been gathered together and now it's translated to the Greek language so so many people can read what God had said throughout the Old Testament. Now, Alexander wasn't there very long for this whole process of Hellenization because he died in 323 BC. And so as soon as that happens, there are four different generals that kind of fight over it. They want to, they want to be able to rule the empire. And it's actually broken up into four pieces. And only two of those guys kind of deal with the Jewish people. One named Seleucus and one named Ptolemy. And so Ptolemy is actually the one who ends up controlling all of Egypt. And he's the first one to conquer Jerusalem. He actually thought it would be kind of difficult, except it was a lot easier than he thought because he attacked on a Sabbath day and the Jewish people didn't fight back because again, we don't work on that day. And so for some people, they go, well, that's foolish. But other people, they were so ingrained in what God had wanted them to do that they followed through with that aspect. And so Ptolemy and then his family, the Ptolemies, continue to um, rule over the Jewish people for 104 years. They tolerate all the practices. You can continue worshiping your God, all that kind of stuff. That's totally okay. But then they are captured by the Seleucids or kind of the Syrians. And eventually a man named Atticus Epiphanes eventually becomes ruler in 175. And that was not great news for the Jewish people. 
because Antiochus comes in and he wants to stomp out this entire Jewish religion. He wants them to look more like Greece. And so he orders that copies of scripture um, be destroyed and laws were enforced with extreme cruelty. In fact, in 169, he comes in and raids or plunders um, the temple. Shortly afterwards, Jerusalem's walls all around their city are broken down, like they're torn down. And then some of his military people are put in a uh, a fortress that is built very much near where that temple had been. The limited temple worship that had taken places is now suspended. And things like Sabbath observance or Holy Day celebrations or even circumcision were forbidden on penalty of death. And so all these things are going on. Jerusalem is now filled with Greek styles and clothes and names and the language and religion and even loose morals. But the final straw came when a pig, which was considered to be an unclean animal, was being sacrificed in the temple to a pagan god. And so um, everyone is standing around watching this, but a priest named Mattathias comes in and he kills the ones making the sacrifice, saying this is not what we're supposed to do. And that starts a Jewish revolt. And so they begin hiding some of their scriptures instead of destroying them. And amongst the hills, the people begin to gather so that they can stand up against Antiochus. And by the time Antiochus took the revolt seriously, the Jewish people had already united well under Mattathias' son named Judas Maccabees, which means Judas the Hammerer. Okay, and Judas, he was a military genius. He repeatedly exhorted his vastly outnumbered and poorly equipped troops to have faith in God and the righteousness of their cause. And again and again, he devastated enemy uh, forces two to four times the size of his own. And so they continued to fight back. And in 165 BC, the Jews, they recaptured Jerusalem for themselves. They cleansed the temple of all of its impurities. They rededicated it to the worship of Jehovah. In fact, it was at that rededication of the temple that began the Hanukkah celebration. Now, before you get real excited about, hey, they've got their spot back, everything's going well, those hard-won victories of Mattathias and his sons were short-lived because very quickly, their descendants, they forget that it's God who delivered them from everything. And this new dynasty, like they begin to think about the power and the glory of the courts and their sons and their grandsons of the Maccabees degenerated into a mode of politics kind of like we see quite often. And just over 100 years later, in 63 BC, Israel is conquered by the Roman general Pompey. Now, I will tell you, during those 100 years that they're kind of getting to rule themselves, there's some pretty important things that happen. Like first, we see the emergence of this group called the Pharisees and another group called the Sadducees. There's a couple others, but we see both of these. And both of those groups desperately want to get back to the way that God had set things up. Like, man, we have been pulled apart from this, you know, towards Greek ways. We want to get back to what's important. But they differed on some of those things. Like scripture, is it just what's written? Is it oral? You know, how important are sacrifices? Even distancing ourselves from the Greek ways, how important is some of those? So that's where some of those differences came to be. I would also tell you one other important thing that happened during that time is the creation of something called the Sanhedrin. And so that was the Jewish ruling council um, that was set up made of 70 members. And Jerusalem, the Jewish people were really able to rule themselves during this time frame. And so maybe you've never really thought about it, but you're like, oh, in the Gospels, I read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, but never in the Old Testament. 
And this is why, because it's created during those, quote, silent years. But because of political times, like I said, Jerusalem was eventually overtaken by Pompey, this Roman general, and under Roman rule, local governments were entrusted to a prince or to a procurator who were appointed by emperors. And Herod the Great was the ruler of this all area of Palestine when Jesus was born, and he made it really hard for the Jewish people to be able to rule themselves. Like he kind of took away all authority that they had. So they still kind of ruled themselves a little bit, but really as far as everyone else looking at these people of Israel, yeah, they were kind of just something different. So that's kind of what's going on for almost 400 years of silence. The Jewish people, they were loving God. They were making sacrifices and they were awaiting the moment that God would speak to them again, possibly through a prophet. As you had heard, like they endured quite a lot of things. But one day, there's a priest named Zechariah who doesn't come out quite as quickly as everyone is expecting from his service in the temple. And the people, I'm sure, are beginning to wonder what is going on. And when Zechariah is in the temple, this is what happens. He hears these words in Luke chapter 1. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. You see, a prophet was about to be born, a prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord. Now, if we're just talking about these intertestamental times, these years, but we look at it from our viewpoint today, it's easy to see that, yes, God may have been silent, but boy, there were a lot of things that took place. I think it's important for us to remember that silent does not mean inactive. Silent does not mean inactive. I mean, think about this. In every stage, we've said, do you see how God was present? Including in these years, God is present. And so you see the writings of the Old Testament being gathered and then translated into Greek that so many people could understand. And even the apocryphal things, uh, books, writings, history that we need to know, um, there was this passing along of faith from generation to generation. You have people standing up for truth, even when the culture is saying, you need to back down, you need to conform. They are standing up for that which they know is true. In fact, sometimes what I think about with this intertestamental period, I compare it to Esther. If you read the book of Esther, you will not find the name of God in that book anywhere. But boy, do you see his presence. And in the intertestamental time frame, maybe you don't hear the voice of God, but you see his presence all around. And just like in Esther, like there was no burning bush. There was no Red Sea being parted. There was no warnings by angels or handwriting on the walls or even thunder coming down from the mountain but they were living for him in the mundane or even the everyday living. And that was what was going on here. God was present and still ruling even in the, quote, silent years. I would also tell you, when you're looking at things, each week we've said God was present. We said that God was pointing towards a Savior. And I would argue the same thing was happening here in the silent years. 
Even though you may go, wait, wait, wait. How is God like pointing towards the Savior if he's being silent? Because he was making some pretty big preparations. Here are two things that we don't really compute a whole lot, but just understand this. Um, actually, before I do that, let me tell you this verse. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the time, or when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And so it said set times, okay? Your translation may say um, at the right time or even at the fullness of time. So that's sometimes how it's translated. So how in the world was this time, the set time? Why would God say this is the fullness of time? And I said, there's two big things. One is the idea that because of the Hellenization, there is now a universal language and there's a common culture. Everyone has a connection with one another. And in fact, even when Rome comes in later, there's something called the Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And so even if there's still some fighting and all that kind of stuff, there is a unity that has been created that has not been around before. And so that is happening when Jesus comes. The other thing I would tell you is that the Romans invested a lot in roads in connecting different cities. And so now all of a sudden, which was difficult to pass along messages, it is so much easier. And so it kind of be like, man, when the internet started, like information gets passed so much easier. That's what's happening when the roads are created, that now everyone is able to pass along this message. And so commonality and connection, the message of Jesus is now ready to be spread. So when you're talking about at the set time, at the right time, at the fullness of time, that's when God sent Jesus. But we often say hindsight is twenty twenty. Like it's easier to look back and, oh yeah, I see how God was working amongst things, you know, afterwards. But sometimes in the midst of it, man, it can be difficult to see what is going on. And so what if instead of looking at those years from where we're sitting right now, what if we placed ourselves in their shoes or their sandals? Like what if we saw things from their viewpoint? Can you imagine 400 years of silence, moments of despair, like asking God, where are you? Are you even listening? Like, why are you allowing these other people to rule over us? Like, they don't even believe in you. Uh, we were already in captivity. Like, haven't we done that kind of time already? They're telling us not to practice your ways. They're making it super hard to be able to worship you. We've seen the temple torn down, and so we spent time building it up again. Like, some of us are even dying as we're fighting for you. I don't get it. And I understand waiting. Like, I understand we're not the first ones to wait. Like, you look back and Abraham is told he's going to be the father of many nations and he has to wait a long time till he gets his son. Or the Israelites, they're in slavery for 400 years. That's a long time of waiting. Or even wandering the desert. Yes, it was their fault, but 40 years having to wait to get into the promised land. Or even David, you're anointed the next king. And now he is running for his life away from a king. I get that there are times of waiting, but God, how long do we have to wait? How long? Like I'm doing what you asked. I am living according to your ways. I feel like I'm being punished for something. What is going on? Like why haven't you spoken? Why haven't you answered? Why haven't you fixed this? And all of a sudden, you and I can connect to that a little bit more than just a history lesson, huh? Because sometimes it does seem like God is silent. And we can talk, man, I get 400 years, but it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here on this earth. And God, sometimes I look around and I'm living in this culture. 
that pushes back on us who really are trying to live the way you want us to, it can be hard. And sometimes the people in power, they don't love you and laws that are being passed sometimes, like, I don't get it. Or maybe we just even look at our personal lives and things that are going on, and man, the stories, stuff that we have to endure. Like some of you would talk about health, whether it's yours or someone else's, and it's like, man, I didn't see that coming. Or maybe there are things in your marriage that that's not what I signed up for. Or there's something going on with one of your kids. It's like, I'm trying my hardest and I don't even know what to do. Or maybe we're talking about things at job, at your job, and man, that's difficult. Or even just the stress and certain tests that you're having to take at school. Or maybe even addictions that you thought God might just take away, but you're still struggling with some of those things. Or maybe daily tasks that seem overwhelming or losses of loved ones or even this idea that lies are being spread about you and you can't do a thing about it or even events that just simply break your heart. And you might say, God, I know there's times of waiting, but how long? How long do I have to endure this? I don't know if I can keep doing this. Why haven't you spoken? Why haven't you answered? God, why haven't you fixed this? I'm not going to give you a cliche because Rick Allspa mentioned at a funeral earlier this week that those never really help. But here is a statement of truth followed by what we learn from Scripture. That God never promised to tell us the why of every situation. I know we would love to know it, but he never promised I'm going to tell you everything. I will tell you that a lot of the things that are happening is because we live in a sinful world and there are consequences that just continue to get passed down and that's what's happening. One day, though, we will be in perfection again where the way that God created it But I can also tell you this, that even though we don't know the whys, we do know the who. And scripture tells us the who is the creator and the sustainer, that God is close to the brokenhearted, that he is the father of compassion, that he is the God of all comfort, that he promises to be with you. And speaking of promises, he has not broken one promise yet. His ways are higher than ours. He's given us everything we need. He sees the entire picture even when we can't. He gave us his word. He gave us his spirit that lives inside of us. He promised to give you the strength to endure as long as you continue to lean on him. Not my words, but David, who experienced some of these times of waiting and God, what is going on? He penned these words in Psalm 27. said, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, well, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Savior. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. 
Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. But I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. When everything seems hopeless, when it maybe feels like God is silent, maybe it seems like everything is against you, wait on the Lord. And remember that at the, each time, at the end of each time of waiting, people were able to look back and say, ah, I see God working, even if the moment it's difficult. And know the same thing is true for your period of waiting. So in those seasons that maybe you feel like there's silence and you don't understand why, remember that God is present. And so in those moments, continue to worship him because he is faithful. He is faithful. You know what? In the section of history that we looked at today, he broke the 400 years of silence in a big way by sending a savior. Because God keeps his promises, we know without a doubt that Jesus will come again. And if you thought storming the court for the basketball game was pretty crazy, can you imagine what that day is going to be like when Jesus returns and people are like, I want to be in his presence. Are you ready for that day? Do you anticipate it with the same kind of eagerness that those fans did? God, I'm ready for you to be here. Can I tell you, in the meantime, during the moments of silence or struggle, hold on to him. Trust him because God does not fail. He is working everything out, even if you can't see it at the moment. So choose to worship him in all circumstances. And so we're actually going to close this morning simply through a song. And I would tell you, and if you're not ready for his return, whether that's you haven't chosen Jesus and what does it look like to live with him or there's things that you're struggling with, could I encourage you to go to the prayer room? We want to meet with you. We want to pray over you. Or maybe, man, life has just got you down. Like just the circumstances of what's going on. You are in a valley and you would love someone to pray for you. We want to do that as well. But in this moment, no matter what season you're in, God is worthy of praise. Will you choose to give it to him? Let's stand and sing.